Good morning, Christ Chapel. I'm glad you're here. Yeah, amen. Um, welcome, especially to the West Campus and South Campus. That's going to go be so sweet to have some live preaching out there, piped into this room the next couple of weeks. Uh, also, um, welcome to the Hive. Uh, welcome to uh, our people in Converge and those streaming on the internet. Uh, this week, I have thought a lot about inevitable questions and just the amount of inevitable questions that we run into in our lives uh, on, a, on a daily basis throughout our life. There's a lot of them. Um, if you break your arm and you're in a cast, you will have to answer the inevitable question over and over and over again, what happened? Um, if you just decide to wear your favorite red polo shirt and you just happen to wander into Target to do some shopping that day, you will inevitably ask, do you work here? right? Um, if you're a college senior, if you are a, a college junior who is going into their senior year, you will inevitably be asked at every family gathering, so what are you doing with your life next year? Uh, if you are a post-college single, you will go to that family gathering, 4th of July, Thanksgiving, and you will have the aunt who will inevitably ask you, when are you going to get married? And if you are married for more than nine days, that same aunt will ask you, when are you going to have a baby, right? Uh, if you go to a fast food restaurant, you will be asked the inevitable question, do you want to spend an extra 25 cents to turn this medium drink into just a bucket of diabetes? And it's only 25 cents. If you go up north and you order sweet tea and the waitress comes and says, we don't have sweet tea, it's unsweet, but there's sweetener at the table, will that work? That is an inevitable question, and the answer is authoritatively, no, that will not work. That is not the same thing as sweet tea. <clears throat> there are inevitable questions throughout our life. The most important but unavoidable question I firmly believe we will ever be asked is what we're going to study today. The most important answer you will ever give to the question, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is, is a question that you will not be able to avoid asking. Um, we're going to study that question, and more importantly, we're going to study the answer, the biblical answer to that question this morning. And so uh, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to be in verses 13 through 19 uh, this morning. There's so much here to unpack. It's such a, a rich passage. Let me set up the context of what happens um, and what has happened leading up to verse 13 um, while you're flipping there. Jesus and his disciples, previous, before verse 13, they have an interaction with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which were the religious leaders of the day. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, they are testing Jesus. And they're saying, Jesus, uh, we hear you're a big deal. We hear you're a big deal. And if you really want us to believe, then do something amazing. Do a miracle. Do a, do a sign. Show us. Prove to us that you're a big deal. And Jesus, of course, he doesn't, he doesn't take this bait. He doesn't play that game. Uh, he, he rebukes them for their lack of faith. And then he goes on to really warn um, the disciples just how toxic the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, and, and even more specifically, how toxic that mentality is of prove it. God, if you really want me to believe, then you've got to show yourself. You've got to prove yourself uh, to me. And so then they get in a boat, and then they travel to the northernmost region that we have ever documented uh, of Jesus' earthly ministry. And that's where we pick up now in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, 
Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The context is crucial to study scripture rightly. Okay, so Caesarea Philippi was a hub of pagan gods, right? There were many, many gods that people worshipped, and it had a reputation. People knew this was a hub full of all of these pagan gods. It was known as a place to come and worship and to sacrifice to these man-made idols. We have a picture of modern-day Caesarea Philippi, and and you see here this this large rock, this wall, and in it there are these clefts and, and these shelves that are chiseled and built out of the rock. There would have been temples around this area. This would have been the area that Jesus was having this conversation with the disciples. And and in each of these uh, clefts, there were idols of these false gods that would have sat in those shelves in the rock looking down, um, looking down at people, this place of pagan worship, right? Pagan worship and some horrible and some disturbing sacrifices and rituals would have gone on here. And that's the context that Jesus is standing in front of these false gods, and he's asking his disciples this most important question in eternity, who do people, who do you say that I am? I hope you see what's happening here, because Jesus takes his disciples to a place of many gods, many gods, to ask them this ultimate question, surrounded by this polytheistic pagan culture. He even calls himself the Son of Man here, which is the most common title that Jesus used to refer to himself throughout the Gospels. And we believe Jesus is both fully God and he is fully man. And this title, Son of Man, was a title that although it still maintained a divinity to it, it's a reference back to Daniel 7, talking about the authority of this Son of Man and the sovereignty of the Son of Man, Really, it was a title that Jesus used that was humble. It was a title that really, uh, although it still maintained that divinity, it really emphasized his humanity, um, and it emphasized his uh, desire to humble himself uh, to humanity. And so he just humbly asks, and they answer. And, and first, they answer what everyone else says, right? He's John the Baptist, he, he's Elijah, he's Jeremiah, he's one of the prophets. And this reveals a mindset of the people that he's holding. They thought Jesus was great. They thought he was speaking truth. If they're calling him a a prophet, they thought he would have been a leader worth following, that he's a revolutionary here to deliver them from their their present circumstances, the occupation of Rome. I mean, this, this answer that people would have said is in no way an insult, right? To believe that Jesus was a prophet returning on behalf of God would have been close to the most honorable thing uh, people could have believed about Jesus, right? These people grew up studying the prophets of the Old Testament. They grew up studying them. These were the greatest heroes of history. They didn't have comic books. They didn't have James Bond films. They had Old Testament prophets. And they said, that's, man, we think Jesus is one of those, a hero in the making. And yet, that response believing that Jesus is great, believing that Jesus is is a hero, that, albeit seemingly flattering response, it massively undervalues and it, it massively undersells who Jesus actually is. And so he turns and he gets even more personal with the question, right? In, in verse 15, he says, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Not the other Jews, not the other fans that have been following around, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, 
but my Father who is in heaven. In these verses, Jesus is showing his hand, right? He's showing his hand of how much greater he is than even what his fan club thought he was. Jesus, in verse 17, he affirms Peter's answer. He says yes to Peter's answer to this ultimate question. Yes, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, meaning Simon, uh, son of Jonah. Yes. Even, even affirming to the point of declaring that Peter's realization and Peter's profession of faith uh, was divinely given to him. Jesus is saying that, that was supernaturally revealed to you, Peter, by your heavenly Father. And let's look at the answer Peter gives. The correct, the Jesus-affirmed answer in Scripture that comes out of the mouth of Peter is twofold. Peter says, you are the Christ, and he says, you are the Son of the living God. So Jesus is the Christ. Christ was not Jesus' last name. Christ was a title he had and has and only he can hold. Christ means Messiah, or it means anointed one. It means that Jesus, if he's the Christ, is the one who from the beginning of history is God's plan to redeem God's people back to an eternal relationship with their designer. Right? The Christ is the anointed one that all of history was looking forward to, prophesied about, and was looking forward to in eager anticipation. And now all of history should be looking back to as our only hope to be rescued from the absolute emptiness and condemnation that sin has brought. Right? It's the only antidote. The Christ is the only antidote to sin. Right? Sin that has been responsible for death and addiction and emptiness and abuse and depression and suicide, illness. The Christ is the plan A of God to deal with with all of that, with all of that for God's glory. That's what the Christ is. The authority and the power of Christ comes as he is the second person in the Trinity, divinely, fully without sin, God amongst man. Off of his throne to be amongst, to love lost humanity so that he could restore creation to how it was supposed to be. That is Christ. That is the weight and the power and the effect of that word. God himself. And here in verse 16, Jesus affirms, it's me. That I am the Christ. I'm not a prophet pointing to God. I am God. This is unbelievable. This is huge. This right here is actually the first time in Scripture where we see Jesus called the Christ aside from the miraculous things that he has done. Because it's happened a couple of times in the midst of Jesus doing miracles, in the midst of, of Jesus calming the sea. If you remember that, on the boat, the sea is tossing the boat around, and Jesus gets up and he calms the sea, and the disciples think, oh man, this guy, he's the Christ. So when he walks across the water, but here, this is just in the, not in the midst of a big emotional miracle. This is in the midst of a mundane afternoon in Caesarea Philippi. It's just there. Jesus' identity, his status, does not fluctuate based on the circumstances or the effects or the emotion or the passion or the fireworks. He's not only the Christ in moments of miracle, Jesus is Christ continually. And then second, Peter also uses this term, son of the living God. And I don't want us to miss the word choice, son of the living God. Remember the context of where they are. They're in Caesarea Philippi. They're surrounded 
by, by old, dead, false gods. But Peter's saying, you are alive. You are alive, God, and you forever will be. That's the profession of faith that Jesus affirms and says that is the right answer. Then in verse 18 and 19, look what he does. Look, look at these verses. Jesus declares, he reveals something that has changed human history. Verse 18, and I tell you, you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, <clears throat> this single statement by Jesus has stirred quite a bit of controversy throughout Christian theology. And so we're going to slow down and we're going to nerd out a little bit and we're going to uh, interpret correctly this because there is a lifetime of implications that emerge from these two verses. On this rock, I will build my church, Jesus says. And the Greek word for church is this word ekklesia. And this, verse 18 of chapter 16 of Matthew, is the first time that word shows up in the New Testament. The first time we ever see this word, the church, show up in, in the New Testament is here. Verse 16. Um, that's significant. Ecclesia, by definition, is a, is a called out assembly, right? Or a congregation. It was a gathering and a community of people who were taken um, and set apart for something and, and by something. And so here in verse 18 and 19, we get a glimpse into both what the church is called out to do and also what makes them set apart in the first place. That's why interpreting this verse correctly is um, so important. Why does Jesus, what does Jesus mean when he says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church because understanding it properly is going to define the church at its foundation. There's a few options. We're going to just focus on, on two main options and evaluate them and, and look at them biblically. Uh, option one of what Jesus might mean when he says, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build this church. Option one is that Jesus is saying, upon Peter. Upon Peter himself, I'm building the church. And some, and some believe and interpret what's happening there in that verse in that way. It, there's something called the primacy of Peter doctrine. Uh, and the primacy of Peter doctrine is a doctrine that teaches that because, uh, because of the interpretation of this specific verse, that Peter is given this unique authority, right? A unique supremacy as an authoritative apostle among all of the other apostles. In, in fact, authoritative to the point of, of what would be now uh, seen by the Catholic Church as a modern-day pope was that same authority and infallibility uh, now kind of read back into Peter. Our Catholic brothers and sisters, uh, they believe that the Pope is infallible, right? And so that belief stems from this verse in Matthew 16, right? They, they would interpret this verse to mean that Jesus is building the church on Peter, and so Peter is functionally the first Pope. And so from this, we have apostolic succession, the Catholic Church would say. And so that apostle authority of, of having an, an infallible uh, apostle or, or Pope has gotten passed down and passed down from Peter to the next, to the next, to the next, to eventually the Roman Catholic Church. And so, so that is the doctrine that, that, that prioritizes Peter in that way, and it comes from this. I love our Catholic brothers and sisters. Right? We have a lot, a lot in common. But I don't think option one is a good interpretation of verse 17. 
And, and let me talk about why. One, it appears that Jesus is, has a play of, of words here. The word for Peter, the Greek word there, is the word petros. And the word for rock is petra. And petros means little stone. But, but petra is rock, right? I mean, we saw the picture of this huge rock of Caesarea Philippi. And so what he's saying here is it's a play on words. You are petros, and on this petra, I will build my church, meaning this profession, right? If he meant to say Peter, he would have used masculine pronouns, but the pronouns used in the Greek are neutered. You didn't think we were going to talk about neutered pronouns at church, but here we are. Here we are talking about neutered pronouns because it's important and because it has implications here in what we believe in our theology. And also to develop the primacy of Peter, um, to develop that doctrine uh, really doesn't take into consideration the rest of Scripture that would otherwise um, argue, I would say, against that. Peter's not uniquely given um, apostolic authority. He, he's not viewed as infallible in the rest of Scripture. In fact, uh, the opposite hap- happens at times. Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul actually calls Peter out because Peter's doing it wrong. Peter's making some mistakes. He's leading the church poorly, and Paul has to come in and say, Peter, you're dropping the ball, and, and they work it out, and they reconcile Ten chapters from now, in chapter 26 of Matthew, Peter denies knowing Jesus when it becomes inconvenient for him. Uh, Jesus, not Peter, is expressly and routinely referred to elsewhere as the foundation or the cornerstone of faith in 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter even writes about Jesus being the living rock. And so option one um, is, is out, which leads me and honestly most evangelical scholars and commentators to see that the rock, listen, the rock with, with which Christ is building the church is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the one we've been looking for, the one we've been waiting for. That, not the person of Peter, but that profession coming from God the Father through his spirit to reveal that to hearts that Jesus is the Christ, that's what I'm building my church on, Jesus says. Jesus proclaims that belief in him, belief in him is the foundation of the church. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. Let me say that again. The belief and the confession that Jesus is Savior, Messiah, that he's the ultimate authority, Right? That, that is the foundation of the church. Everything else in regard to what we believe and how we live is built on that foundation. Now, we got to look deeper at verse 19 also. Because if verse 18 is what the church is built on, then, then verse 19 alludes to some of the responsibilities um, of the church that come with it. Verse 19, if you remember it, Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, so poor interpretation of this passage is again going to lead to some wonky theology. Um, What do the keys of the kingdom mean? What's Jesus trying to communicate here? Keys throughout scripture are symbolic of authority given by a master of a house to a, a servant or servants that he trusts to give that authority to. The purpose of it is the servant then had the authority to be able to open the house and and let other people into the house. And that's what Jesus is doing. Specifically in chapter 16, Jesus is declaring that the keys, the entrance to the kingdom of heaven, is ultimately rooted, is, is foundational 
in this profession, this acknowledgement and belief of who Jesus is, the knowledge of Christ's identity. Those are the keys. And later in verse 20, you'll read that Jesus isn't ready to share that information yet, but because the time is not yet. But we see that throughout the rest of Matthew, the end of Matthew, all throughout the book of Acts and the epistles, we see this exact authority being granted and utilized throughout the followers of Jesus. This commissioning happens. And so the doctrine of the truth of who Jesus is, is being shared as keys opening the door for people. Opening the door for people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Time and time again in Acts, the, the jailer in, in Philippi, they come to the apostles and they say, what must we do to be saved? And their answer is, repent and believe Jesus is the Christ and you will be saved. That's the key, that belief, that understanding of who Christ is. Let me explain binding and loosing also. Um, Common expression, that was a common expression in the first century. Rabbis used that all the time. They would have all understood that to be be forbidding it or permitting something, right? To to forbid or to permit something. And so um, it's not supposed to be Jesus giving his disciples in no way kind of a name it and claim it theology. Um, If you've ever been around people who have maybe interpreted this to say, man, I get to bind and loose. If I'm in Christ and I believe, I can just say, hey, I want that, I want that, I'm going to bind that, I'm going to loose that. And it doesn't seem to be how Jesus is actually um, meaning that. But rather, Jesus is giving his disciples the authority to preach and to declare the gospel message and to discern matters of theology at the origins of this New Testament church. But this authority, these keys of knowledge to discern Uh, That role of the apostles that acted to permit or to deny people into the kingdom based on the truth of who Jesus is and whether people say, I don't want to walk through that door. That door is narrow. I'll take the wide wide route. It's about discerning what is true, not declaring what what we desire to be true and and asking for it to come to pass and and being entitled for it to come to pass. And I think uh, Luke actually 11.52, it certainly helped me in my study understand how the keys in this binding and loosing works because in Luke 11.52, I'll put it up on the screen, we actually see a bad example of it playing out. Jesus is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees and he says in Luke, he says, woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. So we see. We see that the knowledge and the doctrine of God, right, with, with the identity of Christ, who Jesus is at the center of that doctrine, that is the keys of the kingdom. That's the keys of the kingdom and the power and the authority to open the master's house to those around us. And let's not miss how revolutionary that is, church. That is a revolutionary empowerment happening here to those who are in that Ecclesia, that that gathering, that set-apart gathering. To his disciples, Jesus gave them the authority to invite others in. In just two verses, 18 and 19 of this chapter, we see the church is built and launched to action. It's built and it's launched to action from the question, from the answer to the question, who is Jesus? It's built on the belief and acknowledgement that Jesus is our sole redeemer for the sins that condemn us, and it's launched to action with that message as keys to lead and to invite others. It's huge. There is so much power. There is so much power and impact behind that inevitable question that we are asked and will be asked. Who do you say Jesus is? 
Who do you say Jesus is? Is he truly the foundation of your life? In a world, in a world that is looking for solutions to the emptiness and the confusion and the brokenness that sin has, has silently infected, they are looking for a Christ. The world is looking for a Savior, a, a something to put their hope in. Right? We, are all, we all do this. And we often don't even realize that, that we do this to, to false hopes. Right? Maybe, maybe the Messiah is that next promotion. Subconsciously, subtly, right? Maybe it's that next relationship. It's the next relationship. That's, that's where finally I'll be satisfied. Maybe it's that feeling that comes when you're finally accepted by those people that you, you so badly wanted to be accepted by. Maybe, maybe the Christ is that retirement you have worked so hard for that's just right there. Maybe the Christ in your life has become a community that you found that's great and encouraging you think that's going to be our savior or the justice that we, we need for those who have wronged us, that they get what is due them, that that's when peace will come, when we can see that justice happen, or maybe that Christ, that, that hope is um, just the day when my circumstances will finally get better. This passage, this passage right here in Matthew 16 says the Messiah, the hope that we look for, is in a person named Jesus who lived in a town with very few paved roads, was an ordinary-looking Middle Eastern man, Jewish by birth, lived an anointed 33 years. He was brutally murdered, which was God's sacrifice, a blood sacrifice of the only sinless man. He was sacrificed to pay a debt, not God's debt, but our debt, and rose again, and now is at the right hand of God that's the gospel. Who do you say Jesus of Nazareth is? If you believe he is the Christ, if I believe that, that should change everything for me. If you believe that, that should change everything for you. We shouldn't be able to just nod our heads to that truth. We, shouldn't, we, should, we should be moved by it. We should look below the surface and evaluate how deep do I really believe? How deep do I really believe that? Right? Our answer has got to be more than intellectual. Our answer to Jesus, yes, Jesus is the Christ, has got to be more than just a, a theological intellectual box we check. James chapter 2, even the demons believe Jesus is Christ. I mean, they believe it. They are afraid of him. They understand that to be true, maybe even more so than I do at times. It also has to be more than an emotional box that I check. Right? I mean, he was surrounded by these people who were so, so passionate at times, to call him the Christ when he was doing miraculous, passionate, emotional things in their life, but didn't keep him the Christ in the mundane. Or, or when things became really inconvenient or really uncomfortable to trust him. I really only have one um, application point for this sermon. Really just the one. It's going to take me the rest of my life to live it out, and the rest of our life to, to deeply understand it. Um, but it's just the one. Who do we say Jesus is? And when we study the passage, that's what we should leave considering. But in my, my last remaining few minutes, I at least want to challenge us with some tension around that question to put us in a place where maybe the Lord, he can dig deeper into my heart as, as I answer it, as you answer it. Um, is 
Jesus, the Christ in your life, should not be a shallow, easy question to answer. It shouldn't be a shallow, easy question, but also we don't need to overcomplicate it. So let me illustrate exactly that tension that I think is a really healthy tension um, this way. Um, April 21st, 2007, I stood across from Danielle and a pastor stood there and we were on a stage and that pastor asked, do, do I promise to love, honor, and cherish Danielle for all the days of my life on my wedding day? And that is a simple answer for me. I said, I do. And the 24-year-old version of, of me meant that as deep as I understood what that question meant to love, honor, and cherish my wife for all the days of my life. But since that day, right, but since that day 15 years ago, the ongoing depth and behavior change that comes along with that answer, I said, I do, is constantly growing in me. Sometimes it feels like it takes three steps back and maybe four steps forward, but it is constantly working itself out in my life and in my marriage. The emotion, the, the increasing meaning even, and understanding behind that simple two-word answer. It's been 15 years in the making, and I still have, am far from arriving at what it really looks like to I do love, cherish, and honor my wife for all the days of our life. Um, the emotion and passion behind that answer has deepened to a uh, a resolve and a commitment that even when my feelings lie to me, I don't abandon my answer that I do. Um, even when I fail her, my wife, and I betray that answer I gave on that altar, when I don't cherish her the way I'm supposed to, when I don't love her selflessly the way I promised I would, I don't give up. I ask for forgiveness and I reconcile and I keep growing to understand what is a simple answer but has these deep outworking complex ways to play out in our life. Don't mistake a simple answer for a shallow one. A simple answer that should continue to challenge me daily, not just a flip of the switch. If Jesus is truly the foundation of your life, your life should continually show it. But there's a lifetime of implications in this truth. Right? But I'm, not, I'm just going to give you three to consider. I'm just going to give you three implications. You kind of use them as a yardstick, a yardstick to measure the depth of that belief. And there's a ton of implications, but these are just three to pick on. The first, to believe Jesus is the Christ is to make him the sole God of your life, not one of many. Right? Remember the context of Caesarea Philippi. Many gods right? And we all have that. We have these little G gods in our life. And I already listed several examples earlier, but it's helpful to ask myself the question, where do I put my hope? Where am I searching after for satisfaction? When I get angered or discouraged or I feel like giving up in life, I ask myself, what little G God, what fake little G God have I actually made as the foundation of my life that's now revealing itself to be a very inadequate false God. And in showing me that, I don't need to give up. I need to run to an unfailing foundation. Jesus didn't come to be one of many gods in your life. He is the Christ. He is the only Savior, the only hope, the only one who can satisfy. And the depth at which I believe that, the depth at which I believe he is the only one, will be the intensity at which I repent 
and I, and I run from those sneaky false gods that creep into my heart. Here, here's another implication. To believe Jesus is the Christ is to be truly unified with other believers. Right? To believe that he is the Christ is going to show up in unification with other believers. Remember, ecclesia is this called out assembly, a community of people who've been set apart for a purpose by the foundational belief that Jesus is everything to us. Man, Jesus is everything to us. My foundation, the church's foundation, Jesus is the Christ. That means right now, that means that right now, you over there and you up there in the balcony and you at South Campus who this is your first time showing up to worship there or the guy sitting in West Campus whose wife wouldn't let him wear boots to church today or the young adult in Converge who's wearing a t-shirt way too tight for him. Or the people streaming online right now in their pajamas. All of us, right? That all of us are bonded. No matter what we are and what we look like, we are bonded by this foundational truth. All of us are unified. Right? We believe Jesus is the Christ. It means the Father has sent his Holy Spirit to reveal this to our hearts. Man, that is something that unifies. And not just Christ's chapel as a whole, but... Uh, the other gospel-believing, truth-preaching churches in our areas, right? Watermark and Paradox and Doxology and First Baptist Burleson and, and Trinity Bible out west. All of these brothers and sisters. There should be this unity. Jesus is our shared foundation. Unless you don't enjoy the style of worship I do. Unless you don't enjoy the style of preaching that I think is the right style of preaching. He is our unity unless you vote for a different candidate than I vote for. He is our unity unless, unless you don't share the same view, social views that I have. Jesus is my foundation, but, but he's a part of the foundation. And, and, then, and then I also add this X, Y, and Z also to, to my foundation. And church history is full of divisiveness and, and bitterness between Christians on all kinds of issues, Right? And I'm not saying we should stop caring about the rest of theology. I'm not saying we should water down secondary theological issues. We even saw in this passage, they're incredibly important. The nuances are important. Um, I'm not saying we should ignore destructive lifestyle patterns. I'm not saying we should ignore dangerous worldviews. I think it's biblical to wrestle with all of those things because they're important. But we wrestle as brothers and sisters who are unified by the main thing. And that main thing gives us a love and a commitment as an ecclesia to each other to endure that conflict, not set it on fire and walk away, right? Because if Jesus Christ is just a piece of my foundation, if he's just a piece of my foundation, then you better believe I'm going to take a jackhammer to everyone else who doesn't also affirm the other things that are, that are in my foundation. But the alternative is a community of believers who can wrestle with conflict discern controversial issues while staying in unity because what we do believe about Jesus is that big of a deal. What a witness that would be to the world around us. What a witness that is to those who in this congregation do that so well. It is a witness when you do that and has been a witness to a world that is angry and confused. Last implication is this. Last implication for, for this morning is this. To believe Jesus is the Christ is to welcome the responsibility of inviting others into this kingdom. We've been given the keys, right? 
We've been given the keys, the knowledge of who Jesus is and, and what he's accomplished. Who have you shared that with in the last seven days? Who have you shared that with in the last month? If I really believe, if I really believe he is the Christ, wouldn't I share that? My prayer for my own life is, would, would the implications of my faith be something that overpowers my fear and insecurity? Because even as a pastor, I have that. I struggle with that. But be encouraged. We see in Scripture, you didn't smart your way to understanding that. God revealed it to you in the first place. And so, um, and so take the pressure off of you. Take your pr- the pressure off of you to change hearts. And instead... Be bold and humble enough to love people and share what is true and let God do the rest. There are a million unavoidable questions in our life. Make your answer to this question one that has an eternal impact in your life, in the lives of others. A lifelong and ever-deepening declaration that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the Christ, and he's worthy of it. Let me pray. Father, we love you, and we love that you have revealed yourself through your word. That through your word, we see a a God with flesh on in Jesus. A Christ, a Savior who has come. And Lord, now we get to not only acknowledge that with our lives and the implications that come along with that, but Lord, uh, through your spirit, would we just continue to proclaim your worthiness as that Christ. You are worthy of that title and of our lives. So be glorified. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.